Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that uh, in your kindness we can come to you. Lord, as we're hurting, as we're struggling, we can come to you. As we sin, as we suffer, we come to you. And yet we thank you, Lord, that we don't do it alone, that we do it with one another. And so as we consider that idea this morning, help us to be a people who want to invest well uh, in the family here at Lighthouse. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Good to worship with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We are continuing a four-part study we began last week of the cruciformed church. So let me tell you where we are headed. Today, we'll look at the end of Galatians 5, beginning of chapter 6, to talk about life together and discipleship and how we bear one another's burdens. Next week, we'll jump back to where we left off a couple of weeks ago and finish up Galatians 3 to look at what it means for the cruciform church to be united around the gospel. And then the week after that will be our Bridge Sunday to see one example of how a cruciform church does life. I want to encourage you to keep that Sunday in prayer. So on February 4th, uh, we'll have our Bridge Sunday where we focus on our ministry to those individuals and families affected by disability. And it's our opportunity to talk about the ministry and why these families are so special and uh, to who we are as a church. We also want to encourage you to uh, consider inviting people uh, who this might be a blessing to. And we think it's a great opportunity for them to see our loving God who who offers powerful hope and a church who who wants to display that love through how we embrace and are thankful for our families who are affected by disability. Then after Bridge Sunday, aside from Baptism Sunday and Easter, we'll be in Galatians at least until the middle of April. Uh, Of course, we're doing our, our summer series of the Fruit of the Spirit But again, this morning, we're continuing to study the cruciform church, and we're defining a cruciform church uh, like Paul describes the believers in the letter to the Galatians, as a people shaped by the message of the cross to show the love of the cross. Last week, we focused particularly on our engagement with the culture and our engagement with one another in light of the culture. The hope being that we would see 2024, with all its potential challenges, as really this unique opportunity for us to make Christ known. Even this week, trying to, to reflect on those truths, the things that we discussed last week, it encouraged me to, to, to be excited about how we could be a witness for Jesus this year. But importantly, we chose to focus on this topic of the cruciform church, not simply so that we can engage the culture well, but so that we can consider who we are as a church. Because while it's important to consider our involvement with the world out there, the Bible really places a high emphasis on our involvement with the believers right here, on who we are as a church family, on how we relate to one another. Remember that the the church, with all its messiness and all its shortcomings, is still uniquely special. It's the bride of Christ. It's his great love. So think about that. Whereas we are often so quick to criticize, so quick to point out its flaws, do you want to know how Christ really feels about his church? He loves his church. Right? This is why we can't think of, of Sunday simply as a, uh, a chance to fulfill our, our morning commitment. Right? Really, as exiles in this world, the church is a place that we call home until we get to our real home. And needless to say, it isn't perfect. No home is, no family is. We have to recognize it's not only very special, but the church is very needed. I mean, as we think, not just of navigating our culture, but just navigating everyday life, do we really pause and think, we need the people of this church family? I mean, that's how God designed it. 
The church isn't simply a place to learn or to serve. The church family is who we do life with because God made us to need one another. Does that make sense? As, as, we, as we try to discern God's will, as we mourn losses, as we try to figure out how to parent our teens, as we struggle with stress at our jobs, as we battle lust and anger and discontentment, as we feel the uh, pain of broken relationships, we need one another. The Christian who tries to do it on their own or just maybe with their immediate family, that, that idea is really unheard of in scripture. Again, God made us to do life together. That's why biblically the church is described as a body made up of many parts with each part being indispensable. That's why he describes the church as a family that's dependent on one another. And here's the point, we, we need each other. We, we need to be in relationship with one another. We need wisdom and prayer and encouragement and hope and help and fellowship and kindness. And we're meant to find that in part in the relationships of the church. And so this morning, we want to again consider what it means to be a cruciform church, what it means to be a church family shaped by the message of the cross to show the love of the cross to one another. Now, there's a lot of ways you could do this, but what we're going to do is kind of jump ahead in our study in Galatians to the end of chapter five, beginning of chapter six, and look at what it means to bear one another's burdens. And the hope really is twofold. First, maybe more informally and broadly, we hope that everyone would seek to live out the one another's here at Lighthouse. As we'll discuss, the one another's describe the call in scripture to, to love one another and serve one another and be there for one another. And so we want to kind of amidst all the messiness of life, be passionately committed to living out the one another's. When someone is hurting, uh, we have people walking with them. When someone is rejoicing, we have people rejoicing with them. It's, it's active service, it's wisdom, it's forgiveness, it's counsel. We want to be there for one another. Second, maybe a bit more formally, we were hoping that many of you will consider discipleship relationships. As we grow as a church, we realize that, that more and more these, these relationships with these close relationships with others are crucial to who we become as believers. And remember, our, our mission statement is to make gospel-centered disciples who exalt and proclaim Christ. And part of making disciples is evangelistic. We, we want to see people uh, know, come to know Jesus. We want to invest in missions. But really, discipleship starts in the church. We aren't simply, again, hoping for converts. That's, that's why our mission statement doesn't just say our mission is to make disciples. right? It's to make gospel-centered disciples who exalt and proclaim Christ. Meaning that, disciple, that making disciples is about encouraging people to grow in their faith. And it kind of makes sense because at its simplest, discipleship is helping people to be more like Christ, right? To, to believe in hope like Christ, to live in love like Christ, to serve and witness like Christ. In fact, for our purposes, we're going to describe discipleship as helping people to trust and love Christ more so they would love more like Christ. Again, discipleship is helping people to trust and love Christ more so they would love more like Christ. Now, practically speaking, discipleship is taking place constantly in the ministries of this church, right? Our, our children's ministry, we're encouraging our children to trust Christ and to be like Christ. Small groups is a chance for us to come together and to learn to trust Christ and be like Christ. We've described our counseling ministry as particular discipleship, where we're helping people to become more like Christ in a very particular area. But while all these are important, this morning we, we wanted to especially focus on what it means to have discipleship relationships where one person is investing in another to help them grow in their faith. Again, help them to, to, to trust and love Christ more, to love more like Christ. 
Now, while we say formally, we don't mean that it will become part of the formal ministries of the church or that every discipleship relationship looks the same, but just that there will be purposeful meeting, meeting, meeting up of members of our church with the hopes of encouraging uh, someone in their faith. When I was a freshman in college, I was discipled for the first time. A friend, of, uh, a friend and myself met with this young guy who was early in his career and he invested in us. We met, we, we went through a study guide, uh, looking at the epistle of James. We, we memorized scripture. We listened to sermons together. Really, we laughed a lot. We, we ate together, we played ball. Honestly, I don't probably remember as much as I should have of what we studied, but I do remember ideas of commitment and faith, of the importance of, of friendship and fellowship, of the significance of the word, and it really was life-changing. In fact, I had lunch with my formal discipler just a few months ago, and I just, I wanted to thank him just for his investment in me, even though I probably didn't realize at the time everything that was happening. Now understand, not every discipleship relationship looks the same. Like you might read a book together. You might be a mom of toddlers who invites a mom with a newborn into your home just to see how you love and shepherd your kids. You might find someone who's further along in their career to help you navigate being faithful to Christ in a difficult workplace. You might walk with someone who's suffering. You might study a book of the Bible together. You might focus on accountability and overcoming sin. It might be a two-month commitment. It might be a two-year commitment. It might be a lifelong commitment. Um, the way it looks is varied, but the point again is the same. It's a relationship in which we're helping people to trust and love Christ more so that they would love more like Christ. Now we'll talk about this more as we go, <clears throat> but for now, let me read to you our passage. It's Galatians chapter five, verses 25 through chapter six, verse two. Paul writes, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we're gonna look at three ideas, the threat to the cruciform church, the hope of the cruciform church, and the picture of the cruciform church. So the first idea is this, the threat to the cruciform church, and that's the self. In other words, it's, it's us, we're, we're the problem here. When you think of threats to the church, what comes to mind? I know for me, it's easy to think of things outside of us. For example, the you know, various aspects of the culture, loss of personal freedoms, the slide into secularism, various streams of philosophical thought that attack certain fundamental beliefs in truth and morality. But interestingly, when the Bible describes threats to the body of Christ, it tends to focus on internal problems, not external ones. It's not the sin around us, but the sin in us. I think most of us know what that's like because most of us know what it's like to be selfish. A couple of months ago, I was at a game for one of my kids and it had been storming and there was this van that was stuck in the mud. And I was wearing a, a brand new pair of white shoes, like first time I'd ever worn them. I'm not sure why I was wearing them, but I was planning on walking on cement and they're stuck in the mud. And, and so the internal dilemma kicks in, should, should, should I help them? I mean, it was a lot of mud. In my defense, it's like a lot of mud. I mean. <laughs> And in my mind, what comes is the Good Samaritan. Like, I'm gonna be the religious leader. I'm gonna walk on the other side on the cement, <laughs> keeping my shoes clean. Um, but my guilty conscience was too great, so I helped out. And I don't say this to brag, because pushing a van is pretty low-level serving. 
Uh, the highlight was when the wheels started to spin and then I just got mud all over me. Um, my shoes have not recovered. So if you see me wearing them, and I will because I'm so cheap, uh, you will think, why did he buy shoes with that like odd shade of weird texture brown? That's because I tried washing them and this is where they're at. I texted a picture of my shoes to my family. One of my sons said, not worth it. My wife said, oh, that's good that you helped out. And my son responded, still not worth it. <laughs> But right away, it made me think about how we, you know, because as you and your pastor, you're always thinking illustrations, right? Right away, I'm thinking as I'm muddy, okay, this is what we don't want to do. We don't want to wade into the messiness of life. Why? Because we're going to get mud on us. And you know that feeling, right? You, you hear of a friend whose marriage is hard, and yet you know that if you call them, you're going to wade into the messiness of that marriage. Or just helping a family affected by special needs might put you in some pretty uncomfortable scenarios or, or reaching out to a visitor that you don't know on a Sunday morning might lead to an awkward conversation. And if you're visiting, not assuming you're awkward, but there's potential. Whatever it is, it's easy to be selfish. It's easy to want to avoid mud kind of on our pristine lives. Let's look what Paul says in Galatians 5. Backing up a bit, notice what he says in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Again, he's, he's warning against the self. From there, he talks about the works of the flesh, things like strife and jealousy and anger and division and envy. And all this kind of sounds obvious. Of course, we don't want to be in conflict with one another. We want to avoid things like anger and division. But in verses 26, Paul gets to the root of our problems and points out why it's so dangerous and so subtle. Verse 26, he said, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word conceited isn't simply about how we picture someone who's arrogant, like they brag about themselves. It's really made up of two root words, empty praise. That's why the, an older translation says vain glory, but as the idea of a desire for self to be exalted in some way, right? It's the desire of self over others. So the focus is on the inward bent of our hearts. It's really just about our self-centeredness. In fact, the only other place where Paul uses a similar word is in Philippians chapter 2, which Paul writes this, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Right? He has the same focus there. And so do you kind of see the picture? Conceit is the desire for yourself to be exalted in some way, uh, served in some way, acknowledged in some way, approved of in some way. But the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit it's the humility that looks at others and says they're more important than me. So if the, the cruciform church thrives on humility, believe that it is then threatened by self-centeredness. But importantly, Paul tells us that it can come out, uh, now importantly, Paul tells us it can come out in one of two ways, provoking and envying. Provoking as the idea of challenging to a competition, wanting to show dominance, like you're, you're better. Envying is the desire of having what others have. And what Paul has done is offer basically two sides of the spectrum. On one hand, those who feel like they're better than others, and then those who feel like they're less than others. And importantly, he's basically saying they come from the same root part issue. It's conceit. It's the focus on self. And the most obvious application is that we want to avoid sinning against one another. Again, Paul warns against this. He's warning against provoking and envying. He's warning against dissension and division and anger. And so while our focus this morning, unlike last week, isn't really on how we interact with the culture, I do think it's a good reminder that as we interact with the culture, and we may have our differences, we are still on the same team, or better yet, we're part of the same family, which means that, that we're going to do life together, we're going to process and grow together, that there will be differences, 
But the fact that we are family under Christ means we persevere in love with one another. In our disagreements, we strive not to sin, and in our sin, we strive for reconciliation. Now, again, it's good to remind ourselves that we need to avoid sinning, but the movement of this passage actually isn't just on what we are to avoid, but actually what we're supposed to pursue. Does that make sense? If you kind of look at the breakdown of the passage, verse 25 kind of actually begins a new section here, and the movement is towards uh, chapter six, verses one and two, on bearing one another's burdens. In other words, his discussion on conceit here, on kind of avoiding the inward bent of our hearts, is so that we would then bear one another's burdens. And, and what does this tell us? That the enemy of bearing one another's burdens and being part of one another's lives will be that inward bent of our hearts. More simply, what, what is going to get in the way of our investment in one another? It's selfishness. And I'm sure you can imagine how this really would hinder the relationships in the church I mean, just think of some simple examples. It's the focus on self that says, I don't have enough time. I'm too busy. I can't serve or invest in others because I have to take care of my family first, or I'm a college student, or work is so busy. It's the focus on self that says, their life is too hard to deal with. I, I don't want to enter that messiness. It's the focus on self that says, the pastors will take care of it, right? Or someone else, someone else is going to deal with that. It's the focus on self that says, I, I can't really help anyone, right? What, what can I do? Which is really saying, God can't use me to help anyone. It's the focus on self that says, I'll, I'll just do this on my own. I'm not gonna ask for help. I'm not gonna let people know about my struggles. Maybe for you personally, just ask yourself, what stops you? you know, hopefully a, lo a lot of you are loving well, but most of us know, to, know as well those times when we, we slow down, we stop, we, we think about why we shouldn't but what stops you from investing in others? Like if I asked you, hey, could you invest in and disciple this person? Uh, what objections come to mind? And are they focused on self? Whatever it is, hopefully you can see how self-centeredness can devastate the life of the church. And so this is where we start. The great threat to the cruciform church isn't the world out there, but the sin in here. What then is our hope? And that leads to our second idea. The hope of the cruciform church is the gospel. Now understand, even as Paul calls us to live out the one another's, to invest in people, to, to love well, this is more than the Bible just telling us what to do. Remember, the pattern of the New Testament authors isn't simply give us rules. Good Christians do this or don't do that. That kind of describes most of the other religions of the world. The focus of the epistles is on the gospel, how it transforms us, and then from out of that, how it plays out in our lives. In other words, being a Christian isn't first what we do, but who we are. And from who we are, it leads to what we do. The way that it's often described is that the, the indicative precedes the imperative. So I know some of you woke up this morning and thought, man, if, if I could hear grammar, that would be amazing. Well, answered prayer, right? The indicative has to do with kind of stating an objective fact. It's an assertion, this is true. The imperative focuses on what we're supposed to do. In scripture, it's the commands. Those are the imperatives. And so often the imperatives flow directly from these indicatives. For me, it would be something like, hey, I'm a father, and so I must care for my kids. In scripture, you'll see the same pattern, but at an even more core level. It's not just like a position responsibility, a father who cares. Rather, the indicative focuses on the gospel, who we are in Christ. That's the fact. And that leads to a certain kind of life. 
So kind of here's the point. This call to invest in others, to bear one another's burdens, that's the imperative, flows out of the gospel's work in our lives, that's the indicative. Now, we see this general structure in, in Galatians, which is common in a lot of Paul's letters, where he'll spend a certain amount of time talking about the gospel and then transition to discussing how that uh, plays itself out in our lives. Galatians, first four chapters on the meaning and power of the gospel. That's the indicative. Chapters five and six then turn to how that plays itself out in our lives. Those are the imperatives. But we see this particularly in our passage in chapter, in chapter five, verse 25. Paul writes, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. The idea of keeping in step with the spirit is the idea of walking in the right manner, doing what the spirit would want us to do. It's almost a bit of staying in line. And this is the imperative. This is how we should live. And in part, he's building upon what he's just described. He's warning against the, 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 flesh, the works of the flesh. He's encouraging the fruit of the spirit. As we said, this is leading towards this idea of bearing one another's burdens. These are the imperatives. This is what God is calling us to do. But Paul isn't just saying, get in line, do it, bear one another's burdens, love others. He says it's in light of the gospel's work in us. Right? He says, we keep in step with the Spirit if we live by the Spirit. That's the indicative. That's the gospel. The gospel-centered life is that which is driven by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, the, the gospel says that, God, that, that Jesus died for us. He saves us, but he also transforms us. And from there, that's how we live the Christian life. So what does this mean practically? That the way that we overcome the inward bent, our self-centeredness, so that we can live out the imperatives is to be transformed by the gospel, the indicative. I, I'm, I'm sure for many of us, and I, I find this true of myself, it's easy to think that, that what hinders us from loving well is outside of us. It's lack of time, it's other responsibilities, it's that the other person, they're, they're so hard or lazy or whatever. It's that someone's situation is too messy, I'm too busy, or we think it's a lack of ability, skill, maturity which just becomes an excuse for not investing in others. But really it starts in us, it's about our hearts. And the simplest point being, if you wanna love well, if you wanna invest in others, you have to let the gospel have its way in you. You must let it redirect the inward bent of the heart so that it looks upward to Christ and then outward towards others. Practically then make sure that while you consider the logistics of a situation, like I'm, I'm gonna invest, what should I do? Start first by thinking about the spiritual nature of it. That's why Paul says, if we live by the Spirit. He, he's using that challenge to, to, to ask us, if we're, are we really living by the Spirit? We're, we should be asking, where is my heart in all of this? And if there is areas of sin and selfishness, then spend time in repentance. Like repentance is acknowledging our sin before God. And, and yet beautifully in James chapter four, repentance is, is really about inviting God's grace into our lives, right? God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, right? So in our repentance, we're, we're asking God to change us. We're inviting his grace into our lives. And, and then from there, lean into the gospel, embrace his forgiveness. Let the gospel reveal God's power and love. Believe in the power of his grace to transform. We gotta move to the, the last point, but one more encouragement from this. The gospel is powerful enough to overcome our inward bent. And so we should believe that it's a, powerful enough to transform other people as well. Meaning, believe that as we just try to love people, as we sacrifice, as we even do some simple things to serve others, that God can use it all uh, to bless others because that's the power of the gospel. 
Maybe sometimes like, well, like, well, how much can I really do? Or does it really matter if I just pray for them or if I just bring them a meal, but believe God can do amazing things because he's a powerful God. All right, last idea, the picture of the cruciformed church. Uh, and it's the one in others. The picture of the cruciform church is the one in others. In our passage, one of the phrases it uses is restore. It says, if anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And one way the phrase was used was to set a broken bone or to put in place a dislocated limb. It made me think of a time when my sister-in-law was playing volleyball and some jerk probably didn't know what he was doing on the other team, spiked the ball, dislocated her finger. Okay, and, and, and so she turns to, to, to her husband, my brother, and says, you know, can you, can you fix this? And because, um, you know, if, you're, if your bone, you know, if your finger's dislocated, the key is to get it back into place. You can't just leave it like that and hope that it fixes itself. But here's the thing. Three of the players on his team were literal medical doctors. And my brother's a graphic designer. <laughs> and, and he makes t-shirts, which is good, right? That's a great job. Uh, so, so, he, so he looked at her finger. He's like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, he's nicer than me. Like, if I was me, I'd be like, you want me to draw it? Because it's ugly. It's really bad. But what else do you want me to do? But, of course, they, you know, they go to one of the doctors to fix it. But it made me think of ministry and how often that's kind of our thinking, right? It's like, well, the pastors will do it. The leaders will do it. They're, that's their job. It's their specialty. But biblically, we all have a role in this. We're all called to restore people, to, to bear burdens. As we'll see, it's what the Bible calls the one another's. Now, as an aside, if you ask my sister-in-law about this story, she's going to probably tell you that the person who hit the ball was me, but that's not, that's either there, right? Whoever did spike that ball did it in love. I talked to one of our deacons and he said, why didn't you then tell the story about how you spiked the ball and broke some girl's glasses? But again, neither here nor there. Having grown up in the church, I think it's been easy for me to focus on the beliefs of Christianity and the rules of Christianity. But remember that the outworking of our faith is outward-looking love. Look at our passage. Backing up to verse 13, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, not only to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is what the gospel does. It transforms us and frees us to, to love and serve one another. And that's why he says in verse 14 that, in fact, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so he, this is what he's moving toward. This is, this is what the, the Christian life is about. Then after warning against a lack of love, this is where he says the gospel leads us. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So how does the gospel work itself out in love? It's when we bear one another's burdens. And again, this is where we've been moving. As, as we think about how the cruciform church demonstrates love, we should really consider what it means to restore people to, to bear each other's burdens. So practically, what does this mean? Let's consider six truths that we're going to take straight from our passage. First, A in your notes, the one in others recognizes that we're all sinners and sufferers. So before we even talk about the one in others, let's remember why it's so important. It's because we're a church filled with people who sin and people who suffer. Paul addresses both in this passage, verse one. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, the idea of caught here is not like exposed or found out, like a, we, we found them in their sin, but more the idea of someone is caught up in something. So they're ensnared, they're entangled. 
We might paraphrase it. So if anyone is struggling in sin, if they're caught up in their sin, then you who are spiritual should restore him. And so really this describes all of us. All of us are what is, all of us know what it's like to struggle with sin, especially those sins that are so hard to overcome. He then says, bear one another's burdens. And the picture of burden isn't just talking about sin, but as a broader meaning, it's, it's those things that weigh us down. And so we could think of the various trials of life, health problems, relational brokenness, wayward children. But it's not, not just sufferings, but even just challenges. So caring for a new infant and midterms and busy work weeks, those are burdens we bear. But here's the point in this. We have to remember that if we're going to do life together, we, we have to recognize that we're sinners and sufferers surrounded by sinners and sufferers. Like when you walk in on a Sunday morning, like you see a lot of smiling faces and people who look like they have their lives together and they may be doing well, but just trust that you're surrounded by sinners and sufferers, that you're sitting next to people who have just suffered a loss. You're you're sitting next to people who are struggling with complaining hearts. You're you're sitting next to people haunted by their past. You're sitting next to people struggling with addiction. You're sitting next to people grieving and fertility. And they're our family. And in the same way that we would love and serve and pursue and challenge a member of our family, we should do the same with our church family. In light of this, it leads to the second idea, be in your notes, the one another's are central to the Christian life. This term translated one another, it's actually just one word, and it's used over and over in scripture to describe life in the church. Welcome one another, instruct one another, greet one another, care for one another, forgive one another, love one another, be kind to one another, encourage one another, do good to one another, and so on and so on. And, and it's at the heart of the, of the church. And this is why Paul says uh, uh, in our passage, back to verse 13, love and serve one another, right? This is the law of Christ. This is how you do it. Again, verse, chapter six, verse two, bear one another's burdens, and importantly, the, the picture that Paul has in mind here is this ongoing ministry. The, 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 the verb here is this ongoing activity. And so this is the Christian life, this continuous ministry of bearing one another's burdens. And so if we're going to be faithful to our calling as believers, we have to consider what it means that at the heart of it all is the practice of the one another's in this church. Now, one thing this does is kind of speak to our excuses for, for investing in others, like most of us have them. Uh, For example, um, it refutes the myth that the family can take priority to the detriment of the church. So people say, well, you know, my family's my priority. And they use it kind of as an excuse to neglect the church. But it's a bit of a straw man because it sounds convincing, convincing. Of course, we should love our families. We should be faithful to our families. But biblically, the church and family aren't meant to be in conflict. It's meant to be a blessing to the family that we love the church well and a blessing to the church that we love our families well. I mean, I know for me, I think one of the best things my parents did for me was to love the church. That had a profound impact on who I am. So when you think of the Christian life, what comes to mind? Is it, is it the rules? Is it evangelism? Is it growth and knowledge? Those are all good. But just consider for a moment that really foundational is that we live out the one another's. And so I want to encourage you to, to see church more relationally. Not simply as a place you come to hear a sermon or to sing or just to be involved it's where you live out the one another's. That leads to third, uh, the third idea, senior notes. So hopefully you see the progression. The one another's are for every Christian. We're all needy, we're all needed. Paul writes this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Now, we mistakenly might think you who are spiritual is referring to like an especially mature class of Christians, like, okay, the, the super spiritual, the, the real spiritual, they should take care of things. But the wording is actually meant to point back to the idea of living by the Spirit in chapter 5, verse 25. As Christians, we're all meant to be spiritual. We're all meant to have the Holy Spirit in us. In other words, Paul's saying, if you are a Christian living by the Spirit, then help those who have been entangled in sin. And so why is this important? Because it means that ministry is not just for the really mature. All of us have a place to serve one another. I know one challenge that many churches face is that people really think so much of the ministry has to be done by the pastors. And granted, pastors have a a certain responsibility, um, but it's really focused on shepherding, right? Leading, teaching, protecting. The work of ministry is done by the church family. As it says in Ephesians 4.11, the pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So while our pastoral staff strives to love well, our job is actually to, to help you do the work of ministry. And that's why we have in Scripture, that's why the picture we have in Scripture is each member serving and loving others. Recently, I talked to a pastor who is stepping out of pastoral ministry, really gifted, really loving. But in the end, the wear and tear was just too high. And he said, in part, was he, he just had to be the one. Like he's, you know, if it's a, if it, for a visitation to really count, he had to be there, right? Or, or he, he was there for conflict resolution and counseling and all of that. And the toll was too great. For us as a church, we have to remember that this is really about all of us doing the work of ministry. Now, what does this look like? Everyone should love and serve in an informal sense. In other words, as we do life together, we should pray for one another, encourage one another, build up one another, challenge one another. But beyond that, I do hope that some of you would really consider whether you should be discipling others. Right? And again, a lot of us have that ministry. For, for those of you who are a parent, you are a discipler. You're meant to help your child to know Christ, to become like Christ. But, but for others, I just hope you'll consider investing in people to disciple them and encourage them to grow in their faith. Now, with this in mind, one encouragement is to be equipped to disciple. Okay, so if you think, well, I, okay, maybe I should, but how do I do that? I think there's a few things. One is, you know, our counseling class is always helpful to, to grow in discipleship, but two particular opportunities coming up. This coming Friday and Saturday, uh, morning, we have our Counseling Teens Conference. And I think it's really a good opportunity for us to grow in our ability to invest in others. Now, obviously, the target would be youth workers uh, and those ministering to teens, the parents of teens. But trust me when I say this is really helpful for all of us. In fact, uh, both my, my wife and I, we listened to this whole class that Dan Na, our speaker, taught on this. And we were recommended it to others. And yet my thinking isn't, oh man, that would have been, that, that, this should be really helpful because I have teens. I literally have four teens. Um, four teens. Um, this should be helpful. But uh, I thought, but what I've been thinking is I wish I'd heard this 10 years ago, right? Um, so if you have kids, not just teens, but if you have kids, um, I think this will be really helpful. I know we're, we're doing a, a child dedication later today. I would just sign up. I mean, why, why wait, right? right? You're, you're 12 years away probably, but I would, just, I would get started on it now. Um, I think tonight at midnight is the last time to sign up, so please do that. Uh, second, on March 16th, it's a Saturday morning, we're going to be holding a seminar specifically designed just to help and equip people to disciple others. We'll kind of address some of the foundations, some of the fears and concerns. We'll talk about just some of the, the key facets of discipleship. Well, there's a lot of flexibility in what you do in a discipleship relationship, but we'll talk about some of the key components to focus on. And of course, we'll try to answer some of the common questions, some of the objections, we'll offer resources. 
Sign-ups open today, but we really encourage, want to encourage all of you to join us for that. Backing up to our point, the one another's is something all of us should be involved in, right? We should be committed to building up and serving one another. Fourth, D in your notes, the one another's begins in our own hearts. I won't spend a lot of time here. We'll come back to this passage in the fall, but Paul writes to restore someone in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so he's talking about our attitude. And he also says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And both ideas um, focus on that if we're going to love well, it begins in our hearts. In other words, just, uh, and the one another isn't just about what we do, like I'm going to serve you. It's about our hearts. It's the humility that realizes that we too struggle with sin. We might be tempted. It's the love and kindness that doesn't just want someone to act better or feel better, but we want to, to walk with them in gentleness so that they would love and worship better. Um, so the, the, the simple idea being it starts with our hearts. As you think about loving well, again, don't think outside of yourself, think inside. Fifth, E in your notes, the one another is about a willingness to step into the messiness of life, right? So we need to be willing to get mud on our shoes. Paul says, bear one another's burdens. He doesn't say comment from afar when someone's going through difficulties. He says to bear them. It's the idea of carrying a burden. I like, do you, do you bear burdens? I'm, I'm so thankful for our counselors because they are willing to carry the burdens of others. So often it goes unnoticed by all but a few or even maybe just one. Um, and though there's a lot of blessings to be a counselor, at times it can be tiring and discouraging, but they walk with people. Why? To help them carry their burdens. We need people willing to do this. And I think all of us know what it's like to have burdens, right? We, we feel the weightiness of our own sin. We feel the weightiness of our suffering. And I'm guessing most of us have experienced the blessing of someone who comes alongside of us and is willing to carry that burden, help us carry that burden. We've had someone counsel us in our confusion, serve us in our fatigue, keep us accountable in our sin, encourage us in our hopelessness, teach us in our immaturity, walk with us in our loneliness. The blessing is incalculable. Beloved, each of us should strive to be there for others. So even if you feel yourself, like you yourself are hurting, or maybe you're a new Christian, or you have so much growing to do, just believe still God can even use you. Like, how simply could you start? Maybe it's just, I'm gonna pray for someone, and I'm gonna tell them I'm praying for them. Man, what a blessing. Maybe it's bringing a meal, maybe it's thanking them. I know for me, I feel like I've just gotten encouraging texts that just came at the right time. Right? Just to know that someone was praying for me. Whatever it is, help people to carry their burdens. For all of you, um, see it as your goal to love one another. And for those especially who are uh, growing in maturity, see it as your goal to invest in others. Lastly, F in your notes, the one another's is about putting others in the pathways of grace. So remember, the point of Galatians is the gospel that saves and transforms. And, and so Paul, the point here is in that Paul is now saying, okay, but we change other people's lives. Like, you know, the gospel changes up, but we change others. Rather, we should assume that, the, that our gospel ministry to others, it relies on the power of the gospel. And we see that in our passage when Paul uses the word restore. Again, it's a word used for things like mending nets or restoring harmony. But like I mentioned, also of setting a broken bone, of putting a dislocated limb back in place. And I think this is a good picture because when you put a bone in a cast, the cast doesn't actually heal anything. Right? It just puts it where it's supposed to be, and then you trust that the healing will take place. Similarly, we aren't changing others. We're just trying to put people where they're supposed to be and then hoping that God will be gracious to them. That's why at Lighthouse, we've often described personal ministry as putting people in the pathways of grace. 
By that we mean that since God's grace is what people need, but we can actually give grace, we can't give God's grace, we simply put people where grace is supposed to be, and then we trust that God will be good to them. So we keep them in the church, we teach them the word, we pray for them. Those are pathways of grace. And we put them there and then we hope and then we pray that God will be kind to them. And this is important for many reasons, but one is that it takes a lot of the pressure off of us. Like if you're like me, it's like, oh man, like what if I mess this person up? Like I meet with them and I'm trying to counsel them, they're discouraged, and what if I just make it worse? Or what if I don't know what to say or whatever? But really, let's just put people where grace is and trust that God can be kind to them. I know again, we're, 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 we're having child dedications this morning young parents realize that parenting is discipleship that puts your kids in the pathways of grace. You will not be able to change your kids. You will not be able to save your kids. So just put them where grace is. Make sure they go to church and to youth group, pray for them, tell them about Christ and the gospel, give them truth, share with, uh, make sure they have Christian fellowship, and then through it all, hope and pray that God would be gracious to them. So if you want to encourage someone, maybe just practically, just think, how can I put them where grace is? I'm sure there's people that come to mind that you know they're suffering or struggling or discouraged in some way. Where could you put them in grace? How could you pray for them? What scripture can you use to encourage them? What gospel truth can you remind them of? All right, backing up, where does this leave us? In a broader sense, I hope each of us would live out the one another's. Let's walk with one another amidst all the joys and sorrows of life. In a more particular sense, we hope that more of you will consider discipleship relationships. In fact, if, if you see someone you would like to invest in, ask if you can disciple them. I know that sounds crazy, but I would just do it. I mean, what a blessing to have someone invest in another Christian. Or if you see someone you feel like you could learn from, ask them to disciple you. And if they say, well, I don't know how to, you say, well, there's a, there's a, there's a conference on March 16th <laughs> in the morning, so we can, we can start March 17th, okay? I mean, the worst they can say is no, but, and I've said no, but it's, it's not a big deal, but just believe that these relationships can be transforming, that God can use these in our lives. Let me close with this. As a pastor, one of my, my greatest joys is just to see others minister and love well, not just through the formal ministries of the church, but honestly, just when, when they hear stories of, when I hear stories of people just reaching out or bringing a meal or visiting someone in the hospital or challenging someone and walking with someone in their sin, and I'm particularly encouraged when I hear about people discipling others. I heard one story this week that was really encouraging. It was hearing the long pathway of discipleship that started with Amy Ho, one of our elders' wives, and she discipled Kim Sun, who discipled Kim Wong, who discipled Bree Chow, who discipled Joyce Ito, who is now investing in our youth and discipling one of them. And so I asked them, hey, can you just write something just about what this is to you? They graciously agreed. And and so as you listen to kind of them tell just a, a small snippet of their story, you'll, you'll hear it wasn't always easy, but they didn't always feel like they knew what they were doing. But what a blessing both to be invested in and then to invest in another. Amy wrote this, during the, the time when our two kids were young and it was physically hard for me to attend and minister with Jason at Pathlights, uh, that's kind of praxis, pre-praxis, God impressed upon my heart during my quiet time to consider discipling. And literally that night, Jason came uh, home from Pathlights and said there was a lady who was seeking a discipler. This is how my journey of discipleship began. I started meeting with Kim's son, and as Lighthouse would put it, God truly gave me a front row seat to his grace through this relationship. 
God taught me to listen better, to be patient, to have compassion, to grow in the word, to articulate God's truth, to help apply his truth, to speak the truth in love, to contemplate questions I've never thought about before as someone who grew up in the church and many more. It's truly been a blessing to witness God's work in Kim's life and to be able to encourage and walk alongside one another, even to this day as sisters in Christ. God used this to grow in me a great love for investing in others. Kim Sun then wrote, when I met Amy, I was a clueless new Christian with a ton of questions. She graciously waded into my confusion, fears, and even skepticism to introduce me to my Lord and Savior and his love for me. Having her faithfulness set before me and walking alongside me helped to make the invisible God and his, go and his gospel visible and attractive. God used my time with Amy to teach me, a new believer, to know him so that I could love him. And then God used Amy to stretch my faith even deeper when she volunteered me to dis disciple Kim Lee, now Wong. Kim was also gracious and patient with me as I overthought, overcomplicated, and overcommunicated attempts to share God's truth with her. But God, in his goodness, used my time with Kim to remind me a forgetful sinner of who he is and his all-sufficiency for all things at all times. Kim Wong wrote, I'm so thankful for all the years Kim's son invested in my life, even making sure her old discipler, Amy Ho, would disciple me when she went to missions to Nepal. These two godly women were an example of women who love God and others well. I'm so thankful they invited me into their lives, sharing their life testimony, their own struggles and joys, encouraging me with biblical truth and wisdom, correcting and helping me examine my heart and always uplifting me in prayer. They never cease to point me to Christ and the hope we have in him. God used Kim and Amy as instrumental pieces in drawing me closer to God. Despite my craziness and struggles, they helped me to see Christ clearly and love him and others more. Because of women like Kim and Amy and all, and, and all the ways they invested in my life, I saw the importance in walking with other younger women and coming alongside them to point them to Christ. So she invested in Bree Chow. Bree wrote, being discipled by Kim was special because she was one of the first people I met when I came to Lighthouse. She was consistent, patient, and humble in her example. She showed me what it looked like to be obedient to God and his word, both in the way she spoke and the way she lived. I'm thankful for all the time she spent loving me and caring for my heart. It was a model for what deep discipleship looks like as God later gave me the opportunities to disciple others in youth and college ministries. And so she discipled Joyce Ito, and Joyce writes this finally. I'm so grateful to be discipled by Bree. She's been with me through many years, guiding me through the transitions of college and post-grad, comforting me in difficult situations, and always pointing me to Christ. I love sharing life with her. It's encouraged me to do the same for others, and it's been such a joy to walk alongside my seventh grade youth group girls, and I've also recently had the blessing of starting discipleship with Kylie, and I'm very excited to continue investing in our relationship. What a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be about, right? I mean, think about how many lives were impacted, not just you know, the, the six or seven we, we hear in that story, but there are other relationships, their husbands, two of those ladies went on missions for like a year long period. So they impacted other nations. Think about what God can do through us. I think even as you talk with all our pastors, just ask them and all of us can tell you people who invested in us, people who, who, you know, even in our sin and in all our messiness, they were willing to pour into us and now give us the opportunity to pour into others. And again, this is what church should be about. The one another's lived out, people doing life together, people being poured into and then pouring themselves into others. And believe as we're faithful to this, that we'll really experience God's blessing as a church family. Let me finish with one more thing Kim's son wrote, because I think 
shares the grace of someone loving her and her chance to love another, but also I think is a beautiful picture of the church. She writes, both Amy and Kim may characterize their seasons of discipleship with me as one of long suffering and rightly so. But for me, both were seasons of sweet nourishment for my soul. As Psalm 107, nine says, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungering he fills with good things. God has used and continues to use discipleship to fill me so that I can hunger for and be humble before his word, to be persistent in prayer and praise him for so great a cloud of witnesses to run the race that is set before us. All the while, teaching and reminding one another to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We pray with me. Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy for the testimony of your kindness through the people of this church. I'm sure for many of us, even as we hear this sermon, we're thanking the people who invested in us, who loved us, who walked with us, and help us to be a people who do that well, to look for people to invest in, to want to build up others, to point them to Christ, to help people to trust and love Christ more so they could love more like Christ. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.